493. Anyone know the significance of that number? Days until next Christmas. Days until If you could, no. but after the soup thing, we, we, <laughs> we don't want to spoil that. 493. 493 years ago today. Does that help? Reformation. Martin Luther went to the door at Castle Church in Wittenberg and he nailed, which I, I'm told I'm not supposed to nail on this door. He nailed his 95 theses to the door and started a series of events that was divinely ordained, I believe, to, to bring his church into reform, to bring Christ's church back to himself, back to some foundational principles that are essential to the church, that are essential that we agree on, that are essential to what we believe. Today is Reformation Day, not Halloween not even Mark's birthday. Well, I guess it is those things. But um, this morning we're, we're talking about the Reformation and starting a series called Sola, Foundations to Stand On in a Turbulent Culture. Now, in, in, a, in a little bit, we'll get into some of the background of what was going on with the Catholic Church and what was going on in, in um, different people's lives to bring about the Reformation. But I'd like to start with, just consider that today is not necessarily that different. Today, there are all kinds of views about who God is, about what Christianity or what religion is, of how we get to heaven. There are all kinds of abuses that we hear about. The Time magazine expressed that in America, we are experiencing a moral morass or in a values vacuum. And I think if we just looked at our mailbox... Or looked at the TV coming up into election season, we could see that. And we could see that that's very true. And our culture today is in deep need of some core values, some, some foundational theology to understand who God is and how that applies to life. I wanted to start with just a little video from Focus on the Family from their Truth Project that asked a number of people, who is God? is who is God? Who is God? What I would like to do is rephrase that a bit to the question perhaps what is ultimate reality? That's a semantically null question to me. Who is God? I have no concept of that except maybe as a nebulous idea about a deity or an all-powerful being. I don't think you can say that God is anyone. God is what you think it is and God is what you make it inside you. I picture what everybody, you know, everybody does. Big gray beard, with white robe. I do believe in what I call God. God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think our heart is temple of God. God to me is the, the omnipresent and omnipotent one that dwells within man. I'm what I would consider to be a panentheist. So I believe that God is both imminent and transcendent. I believe God is the creator of the universe. He's the one that was before and the one that will be at the end. He's everything for us and everything around us. I don't believe in God at all. I'm quite practical. I believe in evolution completely and some people think that that's sad but I, I think it's quite exciting that we all came from nothing. And um, My thoughts about God is I'm really confused right now because I'm really kind of a scientific person. Like. I don't believe it unless I see it. He's beyond my understanding, and in a good way, because I think if I understood God, I would freak out. Yeah. I believe everybody has their own faith in a God. It might not be personally God in particular, but it can be anything from spiritual worlds to just a place that you go to be happy when you're dead. And I believe that as long as you do good in your life, you're good to go. I believe God is also very personal. I believe God came to the earth in his flesh through his son Jesus, and he invites us to be his friend and to be able to have a life that's led and directed by him. Overall, a good summary of God is he is a perfect being with a plan for life that presides over all and has the emotions to care 
about what happens as he presides. He or she is not necessarily a person or like a person, but God is this energy essence beingness with which I also am in relationship. Basically, I believe in me. Who is God? Me. And not in a sense where I rule everybody. My higher power is myself. I control me. I control my destiny. Without me even doing anything, I ain't gonna go anywhere in life. I define God as creative process. That includes both good and evil, all that is. Um, God is all of that as well. It is just what is. Saying God doesn't mean creator, you know? I create my own, my own being. So, ink is my passion, it ain't the Christ, <laughs> you know? Ink and tattooing and believing in myself, I've done better in my whole life than I could ever imagine. But we say, what is God? It's it just it depends on whose worldview you're going to use. And for me, it's a fantasy concept. Tell me all your thoughts on God. You know that song? You guys know that song? Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. Who is God? A lot of confusion out there. A lot of different ideas. This is just a sampling. And I remember going one time to a local college with a video camera and asking that question, who is God? And getting yelled at, getting people that were angry at me, people that wouldn't talk to me, but as well as a, a number of people that just had all these different kinds of ideas of who God is. And is it any wonder that Time Magazine says that we live in a values vacuum? Because without some foundational beliefs, without some core truths... There can be no morals. There can be no absolute truth. There can be no standards. So as we go through this series, subtitle that I have in your notes this morning is Foundations to Stand On in a Turbulent Culture. And we live in a turbulent culture that is confused about truth. That is confused about God and where many are on their way to hell. And that should make us stop and take notice and say, okay, what's the answer? What can we do? You know, in America, church attendance in evangelical churches is falling. There's a sense in recent polls that evangelical Christians are just not that different from the world, that our values match the world. We see churches springing up that are resorting to all kinds of different things to attract people, to hold people. Things that are abandoning truth. In a recent survey, the majority of evangelicals no longer believe in absolute truth. That's shocking. 76% believe that human beings by nature are basically good. This isn't of people. This is 76% of evangelicals, as they've categorized themselves in America, believe that human beings are naturally, basically good. This is a problem. This is a problem that I think this morning will show leads to a whole number of, of isms that our culture has embraced because there is no other thing to embrace. Just a couple of points as we think about the turbulent world we live in. First, theology matters. Theology matters and it is under attack. Direct attack. Theology matters and it is under attack. It's so tempting to say, well, if I'm going to be relevant, if I'm going to reach a world, if I'm going to stand in a world, then I can, you know, theology is too hard to understand. But it is a foundation that we must understand and we must start with. It's like saying, you know, I'm going to build a house for shelter because people need shelter and I'm going to forget to put any floors or foundation. How long will that last? And that's where we're at, and that's why we're going to take the, the next couple of months, and it's interrupted by Christmas and some other things, we're going to take a couple of months and look at some foundational theologies that are not only vital to our own Christian beliefs, but I believe are vital to engaging our world for Christ. That are vital if we are going to make any difference in this world, or if we are going to be content to be in these four walls. Theology matters. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2.15. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It's 
It's a short verse. We'll look at, at 2 Timothy in a moment. But 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Would someone just read that nice and loud, please? So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Someone else read it. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Thank you. One more. Same verse. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And we could go on to verse after verse, but I want us to understand that it is important to stand firm to the teachings of God's Word. And the Word isn't just to have a, a passing knowledge of it or, or to somehow be acquainted with it, but to stand firm on a foundation knowing what we believe. Theology matters. And it is under direct attack. Those of you that have tried to talk about spiritual things with those in the world around, you know exactly what I'm saying. As people no longer will accept the Bible as a source, and that's under attack. As people make fun of, of Christian beliefs, as, as we talk about God and Jesus being the way to heaven, and people no longer will, will accept that He is the only way. And these ideas are, are not only not accepted, but they are ridiculed. And they are considered hysterical to people. And so we start by saying theology matters. It's under attack, and we better know how to defend it. Second point there is our beliefs about God directly impact our culture and our actions. Our beliefs about God directly impact our culture and our actions. Do you believe that? How do beliefs affect culture? Let's just take the belief that truth is relative. Relativism. How does that impact culture and our actions? What do you think? Anyone want to volunteer? Well, rules don't apply to everybody. Rules don't apply to everybody, which is really nice. It's, it's really convenient if I can pretty much do what I want and as long as I believe it, be okay with it. It's, it's like having white out for your Bible. Truth is relative. And it affects how I hold people responsible. And think about what effect on culture that has. Because if truth is relative, I can no longer hold anyone else to a standard. Think about what that does to government. Instead of legislating and, and laws being based on moral principles, laws are now about protecting ourselves from ourselves. Laws are now about whatever someone thinks needs to be, be in culture versus what is truth. And we're seeing that in politics every day. What about a belief that there is no God? No heaven, no hell, that this is all there is. Does that affect how we live? Absolutely. Because then, what, if that is my philosophy in life, now why, why not amass as much as I can? Why not do everything I can and live for my pleasure? Because this is all there is. And so our beliefs affect our culture. What about there are many ways to God? Now, now I would argue, yes, all, all ways lead to God to his judgment seat. But only one way gets past that. But what about that belief? If we believe that all, all religions lead to God, what does that do to evangelism? It, what? It makes it pointless. Unless they don't believe in any religion. And so it narrows who we're evangelizing, if we really believe that, to a, to a select few, and, and we leave a whole number of other people going to hell. Because we believe that they aren't. See, theology matters. Our beliefs about God directly impact our culture, our actions, and impact people's eternity. Turn with me to a couple of other verses. Romans 12.2. Another familiar passage. Romans 12.2. We just read this in the Rooted Readings this week. 
I hope you enjoyed waiting through Romans. Romans 12.2 Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You might be able to, to think of that as do not accept or do not fall into line with the worldview of this world. We'll talk about some of the worldviews. Do not stand firm. We are different. And we're not to accept it. And I'm all too afraid that we accept it without even knowing it. Not only in culture, but even within our own lives in this room. Because it sneaks in. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we see the answer is to to change how we think, to change what we believe, to allow the Holy Spirit to renew us from the inside out. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Paul here says we need to stand against the worldview. The, the views of the age against what is going on. And we stand by allowing God to renew our minds, by allowing God to change our beliefs, by being strong in our beliefs. One other passage to turn to. Turn over to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. And I encourage you to, to as that we go through this series, to highlight or put marks in your Bible and the verses that we talk about. Go back and study God's Word. Embrace God's Word. Know what it says. 2 Timothy 4. Starting at verse 1. This is Paul's instructions to a son in the faith, a newer pastor, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. And it's not a light word. It's, it's, it's not quite a, well, not a command, but more of a charge. Let's just go with charge. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Four. And he gives the reason starting in verse three. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Sound like the world today? Where men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Literally, to tickle their eardrums. To say nice things to talk about how we can be better people, to talk about those things that just seem very relevant and practical without a foundation. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Literally, be sober. Be alert. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And that to me is a key passage for the series that we are, are looking at. We want to preach the Word. We want to take our foundational principles directly from God's Word and God's Word alone. Say, so what does God say is true? What is true? Encounter the tickling of the ears. Encounter men that don't want to... to t- to look at life and look at doctrine and look at theology and see that they're all connected. I mentioned that in culture there are a number of isms that I call them today. And I'm going to read through some of them and I think just they'll ring true. If we think about what culture is today and what we are fighting and what we are asked to stand up against, one of the values of culture is secularism. Secularism that we should take God out of every part of life. That talking about God is meaningless. And He has no place in ordinary life, in ordinary decisions. In fact, it's foolish. Dictionary defines secularism as having a secular spirit or tendency. A system of political or social philosophy that rejects 
all forms of religious faith and worship. And so secularism says the secular is all that matters. The secular is the only thing that matters and should, and, and religion should be removed from that. And so you get a push to remove all influence of Christianity from government. You get a push to remove any influence of Christianity from anything public, which is secularism. Because it doesn't see that God made all things. And God is to be glorified in all things. The world is all that there is, the here and the now. And our world is steeped in secularism. If you even try to bring God into many discussions, the door is shut in your face. But how do we answer that? How do we begin to reach out to a people that are in such desperate need for God? Secularism. Humanism is another belief system that our society has embraced that man is the center of everything and in fact man is God or a type of God. We saw that from several of the people in the video. And when we begin to to embrace humanism, we begin to embrace pride, self-centeredness. You know, for for us as believers, it can it can creep in. It, it's when we start to say, "Well, what's in it for me?" When we come on Sunday morning and say, "Well, how am I going to be fed?" instead of how am I going to feed others? That's that's humanism creeping in. And I bet we've all fought it. When we say, "Well, okay, we I need something that will meet my felt needs, that will just tickle me where I'm at." Think of 2 Timothy. And are we just asking for our ears to be tickled? Dictionary defines humanism as a variety of ethical theories and practices that emphasize reason, scientific inquiry, and human fulfillment in the natural world and often rejects the importance of a belief in God. Thirdism that is rampant in our culture, and I've already mentioned this, moral relativism where there is no absolute truth, there is no foundation, there is no standard to compare against. And so instead of saying, what is true or what does God ask for us, we, we say, well, what, what can I do in the situation? Really, what does God expect out of me in this situation? You know, the circumstances are a little different than, than he, he said in His Word, and so I think He'll understand. It's just a little sin. It's just a little strange. And it's moral relativism. Dictionary defines it as any theory holding that criteria of judgment are relative, varying with individuals and their environments. Truth is up to me. And if we say otherwise, what are we called? Intolerant. Intolerant. How dare you? May we always be a little intolerant. And hold the truth. Fourth is a materialism. Oh, that doesn't apply. Materialism. And you can see these are all intertwined because if you don't believe there's a God to live for and if you believe that this is all there is, and I talked about this already, then stuff is all that matters. Get all you can get. You know, are we influenced by materialism? Again, just watch advertisements. Ask ourselves, who are our heroes? Do we have heroes? It's a preoccupation with or an emphasis on material objects, comforts, and considerations. Materialism. Last one I want to mention this morning because we need to keep moving. Pragmatism. Pragmatism. And this is closely tied with moral relativism, actually. Because if truth is not absolute, then what is my standard? My standard now is pragmatism, which means whatever works is true. If it works, it must be right. Do you see the connection? And, 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 and so one leads to the other, and these, these belief systems begin to, to breed like locusts or something and ju- just, just expand into a virus and so pragmatism says, well, that worked, so it's okay. 
Sometimes it's very easy to get caught up into that in the church. Well, what made their church grow? Hmm. You know, if we just did this. Now, I'm not opposed to, to doing things well. I, I believe God wants us to do things well. But our standard isn't, did it work for someone else? Our standard is, how does this compare to God's Word? And how does help this help us disciple people for Christ? That is our standard. Pragmatism is everywhere. Truth is what works. So if we look at culture, we live in a very turbulent sea. And the picture on the front of your worship folder has a turbulent sea. Maybe not that turbulent, but a sea. Couldn't find one with huge waves. But a sea that we can drown in if we're not careful. And can crush all who try to stand. But that's not where we stop this morning. It's not where we stop. Because that sea is not a surprise to God. Those isms are not things that that God was not expecting. He has known from all eternity where we would be at. And He has given us truths in His Word to stand where we're at if we would just come back to them and look at them. If you still have 2 Timothy 4 open, starting at verse 2 again, we look at the answer Paul gives Timothy to a group that doesn't want to hear sound doctrine, that wants their ears tickled. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And so if we're to stand, if we're to hold fast, we need to hold fast to sound doctrine that is found in God's Word. And that's where we come to in this series. As we want to look at five core doctrines that we stand on as a church and we stand on individually. And not only for the sake of trying to convince you that these are core doctrines, but I pray that as we talk about them, we give you some tools to defend them. To know what we believe, to be able to engage people with with these, these issues. And say, okay, this is why I believe what I believe. Because it's not just about me increasing my knowledge. It's about how can God use me to impact a world for Him. We already read 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Titus 2.1 also says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. This is the rock in the middle of the sea. And just as we think about doctrine, a couple of things, you, we need to know what we believe. And I've already said that, but, but we need to study it. We need to embrace it to be able to defend it. But the, another thought, enjoy it. Enjoy it. When we, when we sometimes use words like theology and doctrine, it's like, oh great, I'm going to draw in my worship folder for the next 45 minutes. And, and, and we, we sort of check out. But I, I hope that as we talk, we can see how important doctrine is to life, to everyday life. And enjoy it. And the way that you enjoy theology, the way that you enjoy truth, is by tasting it. And by digging into it. It's hard sometimes. It's a lot of things that just boggle our minds sometimes. Because we're studying an infinite, almighty God, and we are not. But it will stretch your faith, and it will give you a foundation for your faith. Five core doctrines that we should hold firmly. I mentioned the door, and we'll get into history in the last ten minutes here in a moment. But these are the five core doctrines that came out of the Reformation. There were a lot of other doctrines too that we can discuss and have fun debating. But these five were what the Reformation was about. These five was the church saying, no, this is what God's Word says when they were being abused at the time. The first is sola scriptura. Scripture alone. The word sola is the the serious title. That means alone. And these are beliefs that stand alone in each of their categories. Scripture alone. We believe that the Bible is authority rather than the Bible plus tradition. Rather than the Bible plus other writers. The Bible is our final authority. 
Not a church leader. Not our feelings. Not a friend. But God's Word. Those other authorities may have a role, but they are always underneath the authority of God's Word. Church elders, government, parents, they have a role, but they're underneath the authority of God's Word. If they disagree with Scripture, God's Word wins every time. But not only do we believe that the Bible is inerrant and inspired, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this first one, because I believe this is, again, under direct attack. We no longer can assume people will believe the Bible. We have to now share why the Bible is God's Word and how we know that. So we're going to spend the whole month of November just on this one and exploring um, all the way from where we got the Bible to versions to, to trying to give you some practical tools to be able to understand how we got God's Word and to rest in it firmly. But not only is it inerrant, not only is it inspired by God, but it is sufficient. It is sufficient. And that's one of the words that we'll spend a whole week talking about is that the Bible has everything I need for living a godly life. Do we really believe that this book is enough? If it's inspired and given by the Holy Spirit, then absolutely we should. Do we believe? Second core doctrine we'll look at is solus Christus, Christ alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. That salvation is entirely by the work of Christ and His atonement. It does not include my efforts at all. It is not God plus man or Jesus' righteousness plus a little bit of mine. It is simply Jesus' righteousness and His atonement. And anything that adds to that is not the Gospel. See, the Catholic Church at the time believed human merit was needed. Human merit was needed. In fact, it was, it was sort of nice because the saints had extra merit that we could apply to ourselves if we did it right. And we'll talk about that because that was the core of the 95 Thesis. Christ alone. Do we believe that His work on the cross has made it possible for the forgiveness of sins? that has made it possible for us to be adopted as sons and daughters of the King? Or are we still chasing guilt? Are we still chasing being good enough to somehow be God's child? Third core doctrine. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Grace alone. And as we explore that, we'll talk about that we have no claim to salvation. We have no right to salvation. There is nothing in ourselves that earns salvation or deserves salvation. In fact, if we, if we believe Romans 6.23, and we do, then we see that the wages or what we deserve, what we have earned from our sin, is death. None other. And so it is only by the grace of God that we have an opportunity to be saved but we think far too highly of ourselves at times. And we think we have a right to salvation, whereas the only right we have is hell. And salvation is a gift. Fourth doctrine we'll look at is sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. And you may say, well, didn't we just cover that in Christ alone and grace alone? These are all different aspects of the same process. But with faith alone, this is justification by faith rather than faith, sacraments, works. The Reformers and Luther called this Christianity's material principle. And this was one of the foundations that started the Reformation that it's by faith alone. And the act of faith of me responding to the Holy Spirit is not an act of human merit. It is an act of faith. And the only way to receive salvation. It's the very substance. We'll be looking at Romans 3. But He declares sinners to be righteous because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. 
And finally, the fifth doctrine, which really covers and and summarizes all the others, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And that's where we're going. And I pray that it's something that we embrace and dig into. But in, our, in quick ten minutes, I wanted to just give a brief history of the Reformation that, that brought rise to these and how you could see that they, they came to light. And, and as I do, I just want to put a caution right up front. There, there are times that we throw out names from this period of church history that we just get the hairs on our necks up. We get angry and we get frustrated and we get debating. And, and it's great to debate issues, but we have to understand that these men were used by God to reform the church. Do I believe Everything every one of them said? No. No, I don't. We'll look at Luther first. And, and Luther broke from the Catholic Church, but only a little bit. But someone had to, to break. Someone had to start the ball rolling. Are there things he said I disagree with? Absolutely. Are there things that I, he says that I think are contrary to God's Word? Absolutely. But does that mean that I put him down? Or does that mean that I don't appreciate the role that God used him in in history? Absolutely not. And so many times we judge these men by systems their followers have put into place that had nothing to do with what they were trying to do. And we can appreciate that God used them in the Reformation while disagreeing strongly and firmly with some of their beliefs. I mentioned that 493 years ago was Reformation Day. It was the day that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the wall, on the door. And at the time, the Catholic Church had come to a state where there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of things going on, and and Luther, in fact, had visited Rome and, and had realized this is not how it should be. The Roman Catholic Church at the time was un, unwilling to reform herself. As people would bring up issues, they were so entrenched in what they were doing. They had, they had mixed politics and government with the church at times where the, the study of God's Word and worship of God was completely absent. And the church was simply used as a means of governing. And, and this was troubling, not only to Luther, but it's interesting, but to a number of reformers at the time that were, that were all over the region. We see the church that, that there was sin that was rampant, that was unchecked. In, in the case of the 95 Theses, Luther was directly addressing the, the practice of indulgences. And an indulgence was basically a way of reducing my time in purgatory. That it, it was a way that, that I could do a good deed here, do a deed of merit here, and somehow reduce the amount of time that I had to pay for my sins. And the Catholic Church realized how important this was to people because it dealt with eternity. And so they started selling these indulgences. And they would sell them in, in, in corrupt manners. And, and basically, by buying an indulgence, you were cashing in a good deed now on the merit of a saint, the extra merit of a saint, or the extra merit of Jesus Christ, so that you could be, be absolved of your sins. And Luther, as he saw this practice and he saw how it was being used, this was actually one of the ways the church raised money, a lot of money. Luther said, no, it's not what God's word says. And on that day, he came to the door, and we have to understand what's going on here. He was not intent on destroying the Catholic church. In fact, this was a normal way of introducing a conversation, introducing a debate. It would be like on a forum or something posting, hey, this is what I want to talk about. And so he put his 95 theses, all of which are dealing with the issue of indulgences in this case. He posted it on the board with the intention that it would be debated and talked about. Now what he didn't know is it would be translated into the common language and spread and it would start a firestorm that would start the Reformation. 
that would start the addressing of the abuses of the church of the day because there were real problems. Luther, just, just to give you a time frame, he, was, he lived from 1483 to 1546. In 1505 is what he counts as his conversion. And it's a, a really great story. He was in a thunderstorm and, and a lightning bolt knocked him down. And so he had a, a lightning moment. <laughs> and as he's there, he cries out to St. Anne, I believe it was. See if I have that right. St. Anne. And he said, I will become a monk if I'm spared. And so it was one of those lightning bolt experiences. And sure enough, he was spared and he became a monk. He held to his word. Now, was that really conversion? Probably not. But it started a path. He was ordained as a priest in 1507. Visited Rome. Disappointed the degeneracy there. Came back to Wittenberg, where he got his Doctor of Theology degree in 1512. He was trying to work out his beliefs, but he was so impressed, or, or rather weighted on, by the burden of man's sin. And that was something he couldn't get past, as man is sinful. And he struggled with the doctrine that God gave grace to those who did their best. Because how could you ever know you did enough? And if I need to add something such as indulgences to be saved, then that implies that God's Christ's merit was not enough. Which would mean he is not God. And he, he's mulling this over and he says, that can't be. That can't be. Then he was teaching through Romans. Always fun. And in Romans 1.17, he read, From the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's where the kernel of justification by faith or faith alone came. And he said, I need to speak up. I need to say something. At the same time, he was studying the original languages of Scripture, studying God's Word, which was not available to everyone at the time. And as he studied God's Word and read it, he realized that some things needed to change. And so he came to a doctrine not only by faith alone, but God's Word alone, Scripture alone. Especially as the Pope challenged him. And see, he would, he would make these statements after the 95 Theses and the Pope. They, um, he was branded a heretic and all these things were happening. And, and as the arguments from the Pope and the Catholic Church would come in, he would always ask, well, where in the Bible does it say that? And he stood and said, if you can show me in God's Word where I'm in error, I will change. And they couldn't do it. Scripture alone. There's a whole number of things we could talk about that we're going to have to skip. He later addressed three significant works to the public, which really got the Reformation going, addressed a German nobility, Babylonian captivity of the church, where he talked about the sacraments, on Christian liberty, where he talked about justification by faith alone, not by works, and he was branded a heretic. At the same time, couple of other names just to be familiar with. Zwingli. Was, Luther was in Germany. Zwingli was up in northern Switzerland. And he agreed with Luther on most things. And, and these, these guys started to be influenced by each other to talk as they're all pastors and they're all teaching. And he agreed with Luther on most things except for communion. And Zwingli's big thing was he banned the images and the icons out of the church. Busser, who was strongly influenced by Luther. In fact, he, he then was one of the influences on Calvin. He was sort of the bridge between the two. Realized, okay, there's, Luther took the first step, but there were more things in God's Word that we needed to reform and talk about. It was said that Busser was gentle where Luther was bold. Luther was the bull in the china closet. 
some of the guys that followed were more the guys that organized the thoughts and gently taught them. Skip through a couple of other things. There was a number of controversies. In 1577, a number of years later, the formula of Concord that, that was the Lutheran church taking Lutheran's theology and, and putting it in writing, putting it into a system and agreeing on it. I don't have time to go through all of the things they talked about. But at the same time, then the second generation of reformers was Calvin. John Calvin, a man that you've heard of. And, and he followed in the footsteps. He wasn't at the same time. In fact, he was eight years old when Luther posted his theses. He studied in Geneva. Interesting, the, the Farrell, the man there, Luther, or not Luther, Calvin came through and basically Farrell threatened him that if he left, he was out of God's will. And he needed to stay and study and, and teach because Calvin was actually a pretty quiet guy, didn't want to get into the fray. And understand, to get into this fray at the time meant death for many of these men. This was not like, okay, I can disagree with Pastor Ron. Heretics were being burned at the stake. They were being murdered. And so to get into the fray of reforming the church was not a light thing. Calvin ended up writing the Institutes. And it's interesting because he, there, there never actually was a unified belief system called Calvinism that he wrote. His Institutes, if you read them, were more a reaction to issues in the church and issues of the time. And later followers codified it into a system. Some of the things that he believed was that the finite is not capable of the infinite. He struggled out of that, though, with the deity of Christ and the manhood of Christ. And never came to, I think, a biblical conclusion there. But he talked about God's work and God's sovereignty and that the source of Christian truth was the Bible and it alone. He talked about original sin. And his goal was to understand that there is no merit in and of ourselves because of our sin nature. And the work of Christ is to be praised. Now I know we can go into all kinds of debates. And many did after him. But he was significant in organizing and writing these institutes to come to these five doctrines that we don't disagree on. At the same time in England, William Tyndale, should be another familiar name, was trying to return the church to its roots, to the New Testament church. He translated the New Testament into English because he wanted everyone to have access, and that was huge in the Reformation because people could read the Bible for themselves. He was influenced by Luther's doctrine of justification by faith, but then was arrested for heresy, tried, strangled, and burned. The Puritans came out of the English Reformation Arminius, and we could get into, okay, Calvinism, Arminianism, but Jacobus Arminius came onto the scene, and he was actually a student of, of the Calvinists, a professor of theology, and he struggled with some of the issues of will, and, and he perhaps took, took man's will and, and God's will, and, and actually his writings are a little different from what we say he believes now, but he struggled with man's will being under the sovereignty of God, and so he and Calvin disagreed there. And the sovereignty of God is supreme. But at the same time, he also countered Calvin as Calvin believed God was the author of sin. And he said, no, James 1 says he can't be. And so they got into a debate about that. And these debates were healthy. These debates were, were healthy as people begin to understand doctrine. I would much rather debate someone in the gym about doctrine than about whether the Raiders will win another game. Amen? Because it means we're proud of <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a Raiders fan, so some of you now hate me. Um, but all of these men agreed on these five principles and five foundations for the church that are essential. And so as we go through this series... 
I pray that we are equipping ourselves to engage true theology that affects everyday life. That we know that Scripture alone is our authority. That Christ alone has secured our salvation. That grace alone is why we are able to be saved, not by anything we've done. That faith alone is the the means and to the glory of God alone covers everything we do. So I encourage you to journey with us. Journey with us and see what God's Word says. One last thing before another quick announcement. At the information booth is a box of tracks. And this is just a passion of mine. On Halloween, and I'm really switching gears here now, okay? So switching gears. On, on Halloween, we can do all kinds of things. And, and I know that it's, it's sometimes very frustrating to see all the evil images, to see people and, and, and how they're, what they're doing with this. But let me just plan a thought. Our, our vision statement here is to disciple our communities for Christ. And it, on Halloween, our community comes and knocks on our door. Our community comes and knocks on our door. And, and for Susie and I, we believe this is an incredible opportunity. Not only for the kids, but we get to talk to all the parents. Because it's really weird that they don't send their kids by themselves. And so we're saying hi to the parents, and we're, we're, we're trying to be a light in our community. And so we've provided, I think there's a thousand or more tracks there that you could just take a couple packets. And I encourage you to give them out as you give out candy tonight, if you give out candy, as a way to say, there, there's something different that we believe in. Now, if you give out tracks, please give out good candy. Enough said. Really. That's not a joke. Because people know, and I've talked with people that have said, oh yeah, the the Christian house, all they gave me was a a little piece of paper and no candy. We don't have time for that soapbox. (laughs) Engage our community for Him. Tracks are free. Take what you want. Because I believe this is something that we should be actively doing of saying we are lights to our neighborhood, not just in this room, We are lights to our neighborhood and use tonight as an opportunity. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, it is an amazing thing to serve together. Lord, as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters of Christ, as the priesthood of believers. And Lord, it is an amazing thing beyond that to be your hands and feet together. I thank you for this body. I thank you for this congregation, this family. Lord, and the work that they are doing for you that we are all doing for you. Lord, I pray as we wrap up this morning that you would help us to engage our culture, engage the people around us, to not run and be afraid of what they might say, but to be equipped to have meaningful conversations and to help people turn to you, Lord God. In your precious name, amen.